You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we both survived Christmas. You're back from the family. How was it? It was good. It was good. Yeah, we spent a few days uh, with my folks in New Jersey for Christmas. Got to see my brother and niece. And then we were in Philadelphia for the weekend for a friend's uh, bachelorette party. And now it's good to be home. I'm very, very happy to be home. It was fun, but uh, no place like home, as they say. How about you? How was your week? My week was good. How much do you want to play Magic the Gathering right now? I really want to play Magic. I played like one cube draft, I think, on my crap top laptop while I was at my parents house. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, and we should also inform the listeners you won Christmas between the two of us. I got the the coolest Christmas card from you. Uh, oh, was, uh, some of our greatest <laughs> hits in MTG cards. And I got you nothing. I, I am the bigger Grinch of the Ooh, two of us. That's all right. There's always next year. Yeah. I've been playing a ton of magic this week as well. So because I've been on Christmas break and we did our family stuff early in the week. I went back to MTGA a little bit, which is shocking. Um, but I initially started out as a bunch of people were cubing and I thought, okay, I'll do something people aren't when I stream. And so War Drafts were on and I did some War of the Spark drafts and just ended up loving War of the Spark on MTGA. It felt close enough to drafting War, I think, and just was shocking how much better the bots were for War than they were for Eldraine. Mm-hmm. So I think just really shines a light on how really poor the bots are for Eldraine right now. Um, and ended up just like falling in love with war drafts all over again and did some war drafts all the way up to mythic. Ooh. So I came in at like mythic 100 and peaked out at like 45 and then derailed down to 200 or something. <laughs> <laughs> but on the way there, did 12 drafts, 58 and 26 overall record, 69% win rate and four trophies from plat to mythic in war. Nice. And then I've been doing a bunch of cube drafts on MT Joe and streaming, doing some stip drafts, just whatever I felt like. Any like new steps that you haven't encountered before. Like I saw you had a cut five challenge. That's sort of a classic. So for folks who don't know or are not like immersed in the world of Twitch, like Ben and I are, you can do uh, you know, stipulation drafts where you have some sort of like handicap during the draft. And a, a pretty famous one or a popular one for cube is to do a cut five challenge, which is where you have to draft all the lands that you're going to play. So basically it's called cut five because you draft 45 cards, you cut five of them, put them in your sideboard and then click submit with the 40 cards remaining yeah I, I had a really good cut five deck i got savaged in round one by magus of the moon mm. uh round two i clocked myself but would have won <laughs> <laughs> and then we got there in round three too much all those those dual lands will get you because they require two clicks well they they require two clicks and then you got to make sure you don't fail to find when you fetch <laughs> there's a lot of planning <laughs> And he's got fives. <laughs> oh, my God. Fail to find with fetch lands. Yeah, I find I just often like accidentally stip draft myself with a cut five challenge. I'm like, oh, I drafted 15 basic or non basic lands this draft. Yeah, the sweetest one, although I don't think I did it right, was Uno. Have you heard of that one? No. So you the rule is like playing Uno. If you take a card, your next card has to either match oh. color or or converted mana cost. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it was really sweet, except I didn't really do it right. I just drafted like this busted mono green ramp deck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're supposed to only be able to take artifacts that match CMC. And that was not how it was initially explained to me. I see. So I was just like taking Eldrazi left and right because I got a channel pretty early. 
So, oh, okay. Um, but it does sound cool. That is a fun one. No, I haven't heard of that one. All right. I'll have to try that out. Luckily, Cube is out for like 16 weeks or something. Like it's still out for like two more weeks after this. It's going all the way up to Theros Beyond Death, baby. Yeah, I can't wait. So it's going to bring us to our main topic today. We're going to do something that we've never done before here. We've got sort of a holiday mailbag episode. So we reached out to folks on Twitter and on Discord for some questions, magic related and non-magic related, though I think they're both magic related. I think people know our our wheelhouse, our, our spiky obsessive wheelhouse. So we're mostly answering magic questions today, um, covering a whole wide range of topics. So I'm excited to dive into these with you, Ben. We've really only done one of these before with our live episode in Vegas. So I'm excited to get to, to do something a little bit more cash. We're usually pretty intense here on Lords of Limited. So it's nice to sit back and relax in this week between Christmas and New Year's. So before we get into any of that, we got to talk about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can go to get back to the show if you so choose. Of course, the show will always be free, but we do appreciate getting the gifts of your kind donations towards the show. And we want to make sure we give back to you in ways that we can access to the discord access to our spreadsheets with all of our draft logs and deck picks access to the show notes a bit in advance of each episode all of that is available for you on our patreon page patreon.com slash lords of limited and each and every week we want to make sure we welcome to the fold our new patrons this week we're welcoming noah jan jared stewart and thomas thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support yeah cannot say thank you enough and i feel pretty confident you know new year's is just around the corner if you've got any New Year's resolutions about getting better at magic or anything of the like, I, I honestly think the Lords of Limited Discord might be the single best resource to get better at Limited Magic the Gathering on the internet. Yeah, I don't think there's really a contest. Yeah, so if, if that's something that's on your mind, maybe consider joining the Patreon and hitting up the Lords of Limited Discord and helping get some you know actionable advice from other people that love Limited as much as you do. Yeah. All right, let's dive into these questions, Ben. Number one comes from AI Bready. When is it appropriate to choose to be on the draw? I think there's a lot of corner cases you can come up with, but I think it's important to remember that in general, they are corner cases. I think more Mm -hmm. of the time, you know, the thing that always comes up with this question is if you're wrong about choosing to be on the draw, you're really wrong. And if you're (laughs) wrong about choosing to be on the play, you're probably just a little bit wrong. Like the edge you gain from choosing to be on the draw is generally pretty small when it's correct. Correct. So in a slower format where you're not likely to get tempoed out, you know, maybe you've got time to develop your resources, you're both developing your mana, some of like the multicolored formats, you know, Cons of Tarkir was a little bit of a a no rush magic format for a certain period of time there. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So I think also an abundance of cheap removal is a reason to be on the draw. This is sort of a, a Ben Stark mentality. Like you are going to be able to answer your opponent's two drop and three drop with a few cheap removal spells, then you'll be happy to be like answering their questions rather than posing the questions in the matchup. Right. Because if your two drop is a removal spell, you want them to have played their two drop to use your removal spell on their two drop. Whereas if you're on the play, you have to wait till you know, your turn three to play your two mana removal spell. Yes. Another one is an aggro mirror where you're always trading resources and being up a card matters a lot. I think this one was, again, Ben Stark talks about this a lot. And I, I don't find myself doing this too often in aggro mirrors. Generally, I still want to be on the play because a lot of times you have cards in your deck that are good when you're attacking. And sometimes when you're the aggro person in the mirror, being on the draw doesn't let you attack as easily or leverage something like... So for example, like in the Eldraine bot mirrors where everybody's Naya aggro, sometimes you don't get to leverage your barge ins if you're the person on the draw. Uh, I think if either you or your opponent has a sketchy mana base, there are considerations here. So if your opponent has sort of like what looks to be kind of a sketchy deck, you may want to put them on the play to try and punish them. So it's less about what you're doing and more about what your opponent's doing. And then uh, conversely, if you have a bad mana base, you may want to be on the draw because maybe you anticipate that you'll be mulliganing more often than not because your mana is bad or you just need that extra draw to like smooth out or like find that source, that sort of thing. Did we invent those last two? I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about those except us. I think that's just us. Well, you you have the benefit, Ben, of being uh, a co-host of a podcast with someone who is constantly <laughs> having a sketchy mana base. So I've got all the ins and outs there. All right. Next question comes from Duck Denord. What general applicable lessons about mana bases did you learn from Eldraine? Was it just applicable to that set? And what will you take with you into Theros and beyond? 
I think the biggest takeaway for me about mana bases is thinking about my mana basically from the start of the draft. I think that's like a big change from Eldraine. And I think it is actually applicable for future sets. I mean, I, I think maybe a, a, a common example is like, you know, you end the draft and you see that you have like a bunch of black two drops, but then at your three drop slot, you have like maybe two or three cards that cost like one red, red. That's a really awkward place to be in because you really want to have make sure you have bl- a lot of black sources. So you hit those on turn two. But then conversely, you're in this awkward spot of having red, red on three. And then maybe if you move up the curve, then you're looking at a bunch of two black, black spells at the four CMC slot, like that sort of thing is really awkward. And you won't get into that problem if you start thinking about your mana base, basically from the get go. And I think that's something I'm going to start doing from here on out. Yeah. And I think just learning how to think about sources of mana for new types of cards we haven't had to think about before, right? Like knowing that you probably wanted about 12 or 13 sources minimum for those quad hybrid CMC cards, if you were only one of the two colors, Or, you know, what was the line on power level for including, you know, a triple colored casting cost card in your deck? Like how how good did that card need to be before you were willing to jam it in with 10 sources or, you know, nine sources or something like that? Yeah. And mana bases may not be mattering as much in Theros Beyond Death, but we do know that devotion is coming back, which cares about sort of the colored pips of uh, sources you have among CMCs of your permanents, um, or not see it, not converted mana costs, but just actual mana costs. Um, so I think we'll be thinking about, uh, mana and uh, color requirements in a very specific way, perhaps not as specific or in the exact same way as we did in Eldraine, but I think it will be a consideration for sure. And it was funny going back to war of the spark on arena, just nine, eight ship it feel great. <laughs> yeah, no consideration necessary. Uh, we sort of addressed this last week, but I think uh, we'll we'll take any excuse we can to talk about Eldraine. Double Dubs asks, a few weeks ago, you guys were really high on Eldraine being one of the all-time great formats. How has Eldraine held up for you since then? Uh, I just want to throw in, how are you an all-time great at reading Twitch names? I definitely would have called that person DBL Dubs. Well, what can I say, Ben? I went to school for talking and also like reading aloud things. That's sort of just my whole my whole deal. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we we were pretty clear on this. I think ELD is the goat for us. I, I think not counting like master sets and things like that, yeah. but normal set of magic cards. I think Eldraine is the most balanced, the most open, the most sweet build arounds there has ever been. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think everyone who has only played on Arena probably thinks we're crazy. Yeah, because it's so bad on Arena. Yeah. Next question from Drunk MTG. Ethan, what is the most Ben card? Okay, so I have, I have thought about this a lot and I have my answer. And I believe my answer for you is Thoughtseize. And here's why. Oh, that's so good. Because I just cast that last night. I was like, man, I want to put this in every deck ever. (laughs) That's so funny. If there are two things Ben Warney hates about Magic the Gathering, it's getting his spells countered. And it's getting savagely top decked. And Thoughtseize lets him know if there are counter spells he needs to play around and also lets him know when his opponent savagely top decks him. Yeah, it's so true. There was a period of time in Cube before you and I met that I was drafting like these Sot Seas, Mesmeric Fiend, Tide Hollow Sculler decks. Like Tide Hollow Sculler is one of my favorite cards of all time. It's like the background on my Twitch page when nothing's live. And I was I was crushing people with those cards, but it got to the point where I got top decked so much after casting those cards, I just stopped playing them because <laughs> I didn't want to know when I was getting top decked. That's really funny. And then conversely, they also want to know, from my perspective, what is the most Ethan card? And I don't know if this is recency bias, but I put Dance of the Mance in here. It's an expensive build around that has huge setup cost. <laughs> but when you do the things it's asking you to do, you very much win the game. And I think those those types of cards really appeal to you. 100%. I, I definitely agree with that. All right. Dylan Hastings asks, what are your favorite archetypes for each color pair that often shows up? For example, red, black sacrifice or green, white tokens, like sort of the you know, color pair defining archetypes. Maybe those are more often in core sets or whatever, but they sort of like inform a lot of what color pairs doing from set to set. Yeah, the couple that stick out for me, blue red card draw. I think certainly the draw two has been a very cool take on the blue red spells thing. And I mm-hmm. generally enjoy the blue red spells, whether it's flashback or cycling or whatever build around stuff there's is going on in the card draw color pair. The blue red spells deck from Hour of Devastation was so good. Remember like Riddle Form, the one in a blue enchantment that was like a 3-3? The thing I remember about Riddle Form is how wrong we were about PVDDR, yes. like second or third picking it, and we were just ragging on him. And then two weeks later, we were like, oh. 
Oh, not only is this like probably the best archetype in the format, but this is also one of the best cards in that archetype. Yeah. Blue green ramp splash is another one that sticks out for me. Shout out to blue green. Shout uh, out to blue green. It's it never looks obvious at the beginning of the formats, but this deck's almost always there and almost always does some sweet things. I, I, I would say like, yeah, blue green or I guess in like War of the Spark, it was sort of like black green, though that wasn't really a deck you wanted to get into. That was sort of like a backdoor deck. But I often like that, that like there's a green splash deck that sort of is a backdoor deck in a lot of formats where you're like, well, I'm not seeing clear signals, so I'm just going to take fixing and hope that I get past the bombs that people can't cast. For me, I do really like Red Black Sacrifice, though this archetype is almost never good. It was pretty dang good in War of the Spark, but it wasn't the traditional like what I really like is the act of treason, steal your thing, then sacrifice it to one of my sack outlets. Like that's that pure form of that deck. And we don't really get that very often. Yeah, you don't get that much anymore. I do enjoy that as well. And I would say Blue Black Control, like I feel like that's kind of a cop out, but that was I mean, maybe just hearing you talk about War of the Spark, that was my favorite archetype in that format. I just loved it so much. And, you know, I do really like getting to draw cards and kill people's things and just pull ahead on resources and win in the late game. Yeah, for sure. Ryan Kerr wants to know, do you think it can be correct to force a deck? What if you think you know a good deck that is underdrafted? For example, Mill or Mono Green in the early days of Eldrine. Okay, so I'm going to go on a, a bit of a rant here, Ben. Are you ready? I, I, my seatbelt is fastened and strapped in. So... I really don't think it's correct to force. And I also think, and and perhaps I'm unaware of this, I think the idea of drafting with preferences was sort of introduced sort of on a larger scale. When Ryan Sachs came on our show uh, two years ago, his first time on our show, he talked about drafting with preferences. And I know this concept sort of blew your mind and my mind a little bit. And we went forth from that episode, really putting that idea into practice. I think this idea of preferences in draft gets kind of thrown around a lot to give excuses for when people are forcing or like making incorrect decisions. Like I think at certain points in the draft, there are just correct decisions. Now, whether or not I'm right about it or someone else is right about it, there is like an, a, perhaps at a, a point in a draft, an objective grade to give a card or an objective best pick. And then tossing in preferences, I think for you and me, that's more about setting yourself up to get to a deck that you're comfortable with or be open to one or two or three decks that you feel like you're going to win the most with versus hard forcing stuff or just like taking picks of things that are large hits in power level against the other card that you should be taking, quote unquote. Right. Like, so for example, you know, if you're saying, is it correct to force mill at the beginning of Eldraine? No would be my answer for that. But you can bias your picks in a way that you end up in mill more often, right? That's the drafting with preferences. So you have Merfolk Secret Keeper as the best blue common, which I think is correct. And you take it that way, but then you're still not seeing the cards. You abandon ship around pick five or pick six and you pivot into something else, which is something I think you and I are both very comfortable and very good at. And I think maybe other people that are drafting with preferences, once they start down that lane, don't know how to get off the lane if it's not open. Yes. Yeah. I think you and I, I mean, I think that comes with just getting a lot of reps in, but feeling comfortable with jumping ship is something you and I, I think, have as a pretty big strength. Speaking of, Ryan also wants to know, what do you think your relative strengths are as players and drafters? So I'll kick this one off. I think as a drafter, what we just talked about, finding an open lane. And the other thing I think I'm really good at as far as drafting is identifying commons that have overperformed early in a format, maybe that were unassuming when we looked at the spoiler or things like that. But just seeing a common that lines up really well against the other cards. I've really taken to heart trying to pay attention to what my opponents are doing, what I'm losing to. And I do think that's a skill I've developed as a result of us trying to pick out the top commons as part of the podcast. Yeah, I'm piggyback on that. I think my strengths as a drafter are, I mean, this is just a skill that I have. It's not really like a talent, but I build my deck as I draft. And I think that's a, an important skill that people sometimes do, sometimes don't do. And I think I'm just very, very rigorous about that. And I think it helps me getting from the draft portion to the gameplay portion. And then also, I would say that I think just in terms of just general card evaluation, which is where that gets applied is in draft, um, is that I am pretty quick to change my evaluations of cards. Like I've got my initial takes from our crash course, but as soon as I get info from, from you or even Twitch chat folks there that I, I really respect or folks in our discord or people on Twitter, like as I'm consuming a lot of content early in a format, I feel like I'm very, very quick to go, okay, looks like I was wrong about that, wrong about that, like got to move that up, move that down, that sort of thing. 
Yeah. And then as far as a player, I think one of my biggest strengths is knowing who the beatdown is and how to play or make trades accordingly, like seeing the big picture of the game and what the flow of the game is dictating that I should do as far as sequencing my plays. I don't really know what my strength as a player is. I think you're super analytical about the board state. I think you are very aware of the board state and I think you can grasp a board state very quickly and you don't lose details. I think you're very good at the detail side of the board state. Like meaning like retaining details from turn to turn? Yes. And yeah, and okay. and you're constantly talking like the last time you and I cubed together, your narrative about what was going on in the game and what the opponent could have and why we should do this to play around this. I was like, dang, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll take it. I like it. Jonathan Boyd asks, do you think the adventure mechanic has contributed to longer and grindier games? So we'll, we'll, he's got a two part question, but I want to address this first part. I, my answer is just no. Yeah, me too. I don't think if anything, I think the adventure mechanic sort of contributes to faster games because I think the biggest I mean, adventure is just a great mechanic. We gushed about it uh, last week. But I think a big thing about adventure is it being able to tack on combat tricks to creatures to make aggressive decks better. Right. I think it made the aggressive decks have legs in Eldraine. Yeah, for sure. And the second part of this question is, do you think the new escape mechanic from Theris Beyond Death will have a similar effect? Ben, what's what's going on with this escape mechanic? Okay, so we've got an escape card here, just for example. So there's Underworld Rage Hound. This is one and a red for a 3-1 creature elemental hound. It attacks each combat if able and then has escape three and a red exile three other cards from your graveyard you may cast this card from your graveyard for its escape cost so and then it escapes with a plus one plus one counter on it so it'll come back as a four two so escape's going to have a cost that you have to pay for the card and then an amount of cards that you're going to have to exile from your graveyard so it's essentially flashback for creatures and maybe other types of permanents i mean that seems pretty grindy to me i, I that looks like it's going to contribute to grindy games yes yeah, I agree. Next up, Nikolai Bolas wants to know, how did you cultivate such a successful internet friendship before you ever met in person? And I think, I, I don't know what your take on this is, but I just think we got extraordinarily lucky. So I will give my perspective on this. So I had decided a couple years ago that I was good at magic and I wanted to try streaming because I thought it was something I would enjoy. And, you know, I was living in a place where I didn't have a lot of friends of my own age. So I thought maybe it would be some sort of a social outlet for me. And met, uh, not met Ethan, saw Ethan's stream and watched it for a while. And, you know, we, we've told the story of how the, the auto host thing like really sort of connected us. But after that happened, you know, was watching a stream and, you know, we're, we're the same age, which certainly helps. We have a very, we have an eerily similar progression through magic. <laughs> and I yeah. think, you know, I just have a lot of the same mentalities about life and other things. So I don't think it was anything that you and I did to cultivate a successful internet friendship. I just think we are the same person and decided to start a podcast together. And once we started the podcast together, neither of us blew it. Like we're both very responsible, organized, like we've never missed a week of Lords of Limited, which is crazy. I think that's I'm very proud of that. Yep. And I think to the point where both of us have had to make personal sacrifices to make sure episodes come out on time. And I think, you know, that's not something either of us did. It's just we're both good individual people, I think, and connected. And I think hit it off we just got lucky yeah i mean i think it's all under the umbrella of, of getting lucky because how could we have known like we weren't we weren't friends beforehand and we really hadn't interacted that much like i watched ben's stream he'd watched mine but like you know that first whatever skype phone call we had when we were talking about what we wanted to do for the first episode or whatever what our thoughts for the show were that was like the first time we had spoken so we had already sort of decided to undertake this thing before we had really even talked to one another right i would say we were not friends when we decided to start the podcast i would agree with that yeah which is insane to think about really with like how i feel about i'm like well ben is one of my best friends now like i like really value his friendship and that's kind of crazy considering we met twice i think just the fact that our personalities line up so well led to a really good working relationship. Like we're, like you said, we're both hard. We have a similar work ethic mentality. I think we have a very clear idea of what we wanted the show to be like, and that lined up pretty well. And we're, I think both kind of like conflict averse. And so a lot of like, we don't let any, if there's any sort of like tension that builds up between us or anything, like, I feel like we're very open about that. We're very good at communicating with one another. Whereas I think other people might have different ways of communicating conflict or, or differences or whatever. And I think you and I line up 
in that way. And that really helps when you're doing a long distance working relationship like this. Absolutely. Viral Misnomer wants to ask, what are your all time favorite build arounds? Yeah, I've got a list here. And I think you've added some as well. Secret mm-hmm. plans from cons of Tarkir. This was a morph build around. Whenever you turned a morph face up, you drew a card and it gave all your morphs plus O plus one. Astral slide is a very sweet one. Whenever you cycle a card, you get to blink a card on the battlefield and it comes back at the beginning of the next end step. So there's a bunch of different uses for that. You can blink your own ETB creatures. You can remove your opponent's blockers. It's a really sweet, deep build around. Um, approach the second sun is one i loved drafting that deck in hour of devastation this was six and a white for a sorcery that gained you seven life and then put it back seven cards deep in your library and whenever you cast it the second time you won the game that was a really fun i loved that blue white deck in hour of devastation and then most recently fires of invention uh is is my current love child i i think this is the card that you have gone gaga over more than anything else since we've started the podcast. Yeah, I think so. You just you were hot on this card from day one, and just like you keep bringing it up. <laughs> I, that's because I like being right about it. It's a good feeling. Yeah, it is. No, I, I I agree with that. So I got to give a shout out to I think the first two like build arounds for me, like the OG build arounds, were spider spawning and burning vengeance from Innistrad block. Yeah. Like that was when I feel like I first was introduced to the idea of just taking a card and warping your entire draft around it. So spider spawning was this sorcery with flashback that made a bunch of one, two spiders for each creature in your graveyard. So there was this like, you know, sort of very convoluted four card package that you wanted to be able to, you know, you'd just be self milling yourself and then you would flash that back from exile. And then there was a card that let you get a flashback card from exile back into your hand. And then there was a card that shuffled things from your graveyard into your library. So you could just infinitely loop those and eventually just like overwhelm your opponent with one twos or deck them, whatever. Um, And burning vengeance was less convoluted. That just cared about you having a bunch of cheap cards with flashback because every time you cast a card from your graveyard, you got to shock something. But that was the first time I felt like I was like, oh, this is a, a concept in limited that I am not familiar with. And so more recently for me, got to give a shout out to both Lich's Mastery from Dominaria and Dovin's Acuity more recently from Ravnica Allegiance. What was the build around? The other one that really sticks out to me for you is the thing from HOU that did the CMC one, two, three. What was that card? Imminent Doom. Yeah, you broke that one wide open. That card was awesome. Yes, this was a two and a red enchantment that like basically you had to chain spells. But like the first time you cast a CMC one card, it dealt one to something and then you could cast a CMC two spell and then it dealt two and then so on and so forth, three, four, five, six. So it was about like drafting a bunch of these like cheap cantrips to start the chain at one and then move up the curve. That was a fun card. Next question comes from Dingus Egg. If you were in the Watsi development team, what one or two cards would you change to make the draft format better? And how would you change them using Eldraine as a basis? I think you and I have the same answer for this. Yeah, our kind of absolution is the worst magic card on the planet. (laughs) So why is it so egregious to you? Because Mono White is a deck, and it's a good deck, and it just single-handedly is the most feel-bad card possible that could be played against you if you do what you're supposed to do and draft Mono White. Having a card that just punishes you for drafting an archetype feels so bad. Right, so this cycle of cards is sort of all over the place, right? There's this, like, cards of a color that sort of get a bonus if they're targeting a card of that color like but they're all over the place like this specter shriek was the black one and that's basically just a sideboard card because it's a discard effect there's red cap melee which is awesome like you didn't care if you were targeting a red thing or not there was like okay adversary which was just like weird because it got to cost less if your opponent had a green permanent and then mystical dispute as the blue one to like make a counter spell cheaper or whatever. It was like basically three mana mana leak, but two cheaper if it targeted a blue thing, like all over the place. And then you've just got this like really rock solid, amazing creature, like already four mana, three, two flyer with the attacking tax that it had. That's great. And then Hexproof from white just really tipped it over the top. And I, well, that's oh, no, the thing. Hexproof, no, it's not for, Hexproof. Hexproof, it's, Hexproof it's, from white would have been somewhat reasonable. It's not that, but it's not that. It's it's protection from white, which also really bums me out. And I, just because I've been gotten got twice by this, that you can't cast on alert onto it. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even categorize that card as part of that cycle because I hate it so much. <laughs> but that's the change you make, right? You just make it Hexproof from white and then it's fine. It's, it's still really powerful, but it's reasonable. Yeah, but then it 
then that white deck doesn't get totally owned by it because you can still attack into it. Right, absolutely. Or, or block it, yeah. Did, did not like that card. Todd Words wants to know, if you were to design, I love this question, if you were to design a single-player MTG game in the vein of Chandelar, based on limited gameplay and skills, what would it be? I went super deep on this. Yeah, I love I it. Was, I was sitting in, I was getting my tires changed on my Corolla, and I was sitting in the thing, like, you know, for an hour or so while they're changing my tires, answering all these questions, and I just started thinking about this, and I kept going and going and going. Uh, so I think I would start with some Pygao pack wars, maybe to grow your collection, like a little 1v1 against an automated computer. Mm-hmm. And then there were all these other cool things I started to think of. So I think you could do pack one, pick ones, where if you choose the quote unquote correct pack one, pick one, you maybe get to add a common or a card to your collection or something. So ultimately, you're trying to grow a collection of cards to then build, you know, limited decks with. Mm-hmm. And I think you could expand that concept to multiple cards deep in the pack. Like you could have to name like, okay, this is the most powerful card in the pack. This is the second most powerful card in the pack. This is the third most powerful card in the pack. And I think you could give, you know, ranges of errors, right? Where if it picks close, like if it's between whatever, mm-hmm. um, Scorching Dragonfire and Bake into a Pie, like, and they pick Scorching Dragonfire as number one, you still allow that. Like, mm-hmm. give, give a little margin for error. And I think you could also have like keeper mole training areas where like you go in, they show you hands and you have to pick correctly keeper mole. And I think ultimately, you know, you're trying to build this collection have it sort of be like Pokemon where there are gym bosses, except they're archetype bosses. So you have each of the whatever in Eldraine, the 15 gyms that are like the blue red spells deck. And it's like the perfect blue red spells deck and you have to try to build a deck so like maybe you know eldraine's kind of matchup dependent you take your revenge of ravens you know punish the one one flyer deck to beat the the blue red gym or whatever that sounds super sweet to me the game you designed yeah (laughs) yeah i agree i would add so the thing about chandelar it has a lot of nostalgia for me but then in actually going back to play it i find it gets kind of old quickly because like you're just doing the same things over and over again you're just playing this like best of one with your you know, deck as you progress with that deck or like add more cards to it. I want more like mini game stuff, like uh, like the things that you're outlining here. Like I would even love like mini games of like puzzles, like magic puzzles, like uh, what's the play sort of thing, or like how do you win this turn? Those kinds of things that like were divorced from the deck that you're currently working on. But I would love a game like this if anyone's listening over at Watsy. Yeah, patent pending. <laughs> Cardboard Mage wants to know what sets were just released when you both started playing Magic. I think it's, I mean, we're the same person, so I think it's the same. Is it? So for me, it was Fallen Empires Revised 4th Edition. My first pack of Magic cards ever was a 4th Edition booster where I opened a Sheban Dragon. Ooh, yeah. So I don't know what my first, like, pack that I cracked was, because I got a lot of, my brothers played when I was a kid. So when I was like, I don't know, six or something, I don't know how old I was, that's, they were like 12. So they like were teaching me, but I felt like I got just like junker cards from them to play with. And then I would like teach, I taught my friend how to play and then we just played a bunch together. Um, So I don't remember what it was, but it was definitely around that time, like fourth edition Fallen Empires, Ice Age, that sort of thing. But then when did you get back into it? Uh, I mean, I played pretty steadily all the way through. The biggest break I probably took was in middle school. Mm. Uh, Like it would have been around like Urza's Saga like that that era and like guilds of ravnica the original the og guilds um shards of alara those sets i missed all those oh yeah i stopped in ninth grade so like i think the last set i was really into the last last block i was really into was invasion block and then i stopped and then i picked back up at scars of mirrodin yeah mirrodin was the one i where i picked up the hardest again so do you remember, so you, you like got into it, but do you remember like before you were good, like, did you have a deck like back oh, yeah. when, back when you were like, you know, the old, like 20 lands, 20 creatures, 20 spells deck, like, oh yeah, for sure. What was your deck then? Uh, I had a, a fairies deck mostly because I wanted like a tribal deck and uh-huh. my other cool tribal decks were taken by my brothers. So I don't remember, I don't even remember what the names of the fairy lords were, but there were some fairy lords and then had like an Allurin. There was some combo with Allurin that I had in my deck where I could just spew all my creatures out. I don't remember what it was. And then I also had a really sweet uh, pay one deck, like with with effects that caused you to pay one. And then there's this card called Mana Web or something that with whenever you paid one, whenever you tapped a mana, you had to tap all your mana right then or it got tapped for you. So I would just like tax people. And yeah, I, I had a bunch of sweet little inventions. I loved brewing when I was a kid. 
That's funny. I had this green white like life gain deck from that had a bunch of like invasion cards, plane shift. So it was built around like this card, Quirion Dryad, which was one in a green for a one oh, one. Yeah. yeah, but whenever you cast a spell that like wasn't green, basically, or like was white, red, blue, or or black, you got to put a plus plus one counter on it. And then Armadillo Cloak, the one green white plus two plus two mm-hmm. aura gives a trample and lifelink. So you would go like that on two and then that on three, and you're attacking with a four four lifelinking trampler. But then I also have like four copies of Heroes Reunion in that deck for no reason, which is just, like green white gain seven was a not not the best deck nice all right Corticals asks if you were to battle for the title of definitive lol co-host which set would you challenge the other to draft with you and six other good players and then he puts in parentheses just to really hammer the point home the set that you think you'd be great at and has the highest potential for the other to train wreck i think i thought about this one a lot and my initial answer was going to be Cons of Tarkir, not because I think you would train wreck in Cons of Tarkir, but just because I think I could take anybody in Cons of Tarkir. Mm-hmm. I, I think I could sit down at Pro Tour KTK and compete. But do you remember all the morphs? Do I remember them all? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I know what all the morphs are for sure. Okay. Uh, I played a lot of Cons of Tarkir. <laughs> um I think, but if I were trying to train wreck you, I think it would be M19. Oh, 100% has to be M19. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like the mere thought of drafting it makes me want to lose. Like, I just think <laughs> you've got a huge edge there. I think for me, I mean, it's the only format that I've ever done better than you at is Dominaria. Yeah, that's that's an easy answer for you, for sure. Nick Lapointe wants to know, what are the best general resources, our episodes or otherwise, to improve at and learn more about Limited? Is there a list of episodes not about a certain set, but rather about playing Limited overall from Lords of Limited? And the answer to that is, yes, there are. And it is pinned to our Discord. We'll run through them here real quick. Uh, number 23 is Making Your Own Luck. Love that episode. Very proud of that one. Number 26, Drafting with Preferences. Number 35, Drafting with a Plan. And number 36, Choosing Your Plan in Draft. Number 39, Andrew Cuneo Q&A. Number 41, Learning New Formats. Number 51, Building Mana Bases in Limited. I think we're going to return to this topic pretty soon. Number 60, Getting Good at Limited with Ari Lax. A lot of our guest episodes have been great. Yeah. Number 74, playing counterspells in limited. Number 77, Ryan Sachs drafting aggro. Number 80, the art of card evaluation. Number 92, breaking bad draft habits. Yeah, so I think that's a really good list to get you started for a lot of episodes that are sort of applicable. I think we usually use the current format as context, but these are concepts that are applicable for future sets to come. Yeah, and I think, you know, if if you want to get better at magic, I think the best thing you can do is watch Twitch. Hands down, like me, Ethan, Ben S. There's a wealth of great limited players streaming on Twitch and then draft videos over on CFB. I think that's how you and I both grew up Mm -hmm. and got good. And I think LR's greatest hits, you know, Quadrant Theory, they have a lot of timeless level up episodes that I'm sure if you went to the limited resources discord, you know, people would be happy to point you towards their evergreen episodes. And I think just to point out why you and I are so high on Twitch streams, at least why I'm so high on Twitch streams over YouTube videos is there is nothing more valuable than being able to ask the person in real time why they're making the decisions they're making. Being able to hear that explanation or to press and be like, I would have done this. Why aren't you doing that? Because that not only lets you hear their explanation and then you grow from that, but also sometimes they'll go, oh, that is a good line. And so you also get this sort of like, as you're playing along with them, you can get validation of, ah, yes, I am thinking about this this the correct way. And that enforcement is also important. My answers to those questions are usually... I was tired. I made a mistake. <laughs> I, I wasn't paying attention. My favorite is <laughs> when it's like people are suggesting better lines. When it's like two turns later, I'm like, how can I possibly remember that? That, yeah, <laughs> those are rough too. Some occasionally though, like people do ask really good questions and oh, know, yeah, yeah. We, we have good discussions as well. All right, we got a doozy here, Ben. Box of Daylight asks, from the past decade of magic, what is your favorite? So we got five of these. So we'll go first. Card for limited. Squire's Devotion for me, although there might be others. I tanked on this one pretty hard. Yeah, this is a toughie. When, when you're not branding yourself as hard as I am, you, you, you may not just get there. So I, I this is a pretty easy answer for me is Sailor of Means. Favorite card design, period. So I took a sort of a bunch of sets. This is maybe like a year worth. This was our first, I think, year of the podcast, basically, was I went from Amonkhet through Dominaria. I really liked... I mean, I know this is sort of not a, perhaps a popular opinion, but like I really did still like Triple Amonkhet and Triple Ixalan. So going from that, you got Hour of Devastation in there, Rivals of Ixalan through Dominaria. I, I think all those sets are great. 
And for me, I just picked War of the Spark. Going back to War of the Spark was just, it was unbelievable. I, I love that set when it was around, going back on Arena. And if going back on Arena was great, going back on MTGO would have to be even better. Just the Planeswalkers, the uncommon Planeswalkers, the play patterns. It was very different style of limited Magic the Gathering, and I think they nailed it. Yeah. How about your personal moment of triumph in Magic? I think I'm, I'm going to go with getting partnered on Twitch. I haven't had any big tournament successes necessarily and getting partnered once i started streaming and it was going reasonably well was a pretty big goal and i remember being really really excited it just sort of gave some legitimacy to what i was doing with my free time with my hobby yeah i had i had honorable mention of getting twitch partner or even more so i would say getting star city games associated with this podcast felt like a huge get for us. Um, but but the question is personal moment. So I'm going to choose day twoing uh, the Ravnica Allegiance GP. Yeah, I was rooting for you so hard. Thanks, man. Next is personal moment of triumph outside of magic. Um, I mean, I had a lot this year of like, you know, buying a house, we bought a car, I went full time content creator. Um, but I think I still got to give the nod in the decade to getting married. Oh, uh, for me, I think I was trying to think about this one. And I, it's funny because I'm like a pretty successful person by metrics, but I don't always feel that way. Um, I think it was my first time advancing in a professional orchestra audition. And if you don't, if you're not in, like you're probably fairly familiar with this, like I would imagine it equates to acting sort of. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the audition world, there's actually a really good sitcom or like comedy on Amazon Prime called Mozart in the Jungle that mm. sort of gives you a look into the world. Um, but so you you go, you have your excerpts ready, which are like short pieces, short segments of music that you would play on your instrument that's very difficult. And you go and you play and you're behind a curtain and there's people on the committee listening to you, like usually the conductor and somebody from your section and then a couple other woodwinds in my case, like there might be an oboe or whatever. And you play your stuff and they listen to you until they think you're not good enough. And then they just say, thank you. <laughs> and you get up and you walk away and you go. And then if you're sometimes you make it all the way through before they say thank you and then you have to wait and there's rounds. So like there might be 100 people to start and then, you know, number 17 and number 52 and number whatever, like advance to the second round. And sometimes they've got two rounds, three rounds, whatever. Um, so the first time I ever advanced to the second round in an audition was really cool. I was on the audition circuit and then I ended up getting runner up in the audition, which much like Magic the Gathering PTQs or something, I don't know, maybe I have an obsession with things that are <laughs> all or nothing. Uh, second place gets you nothing. And, the, and if you win the audition, you get that spot in the orchestra for the rest of your life. Um, so while I was in college graduate school, did a lot of auditions and I was runner up four times. So very close to making it uh, playing professionally, but didn't, never quite got over the hump. But the very first time I advanced was really special. That's awesome. And the last one here on this list is non magic video game or movie if this isn't applicable. Um, for me, I think, you know, there was a pretty dark time in my life where I was playing World of Warcraft uh, nonstop, specifically junior year of high school was staying up pretty frequently till like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., raiding and then sleeping through class or going bleary-eyed through class. But you weren't a junior in high school this decade. No. So, but World of Warcraft was like out in this decade. And I did play in, oh gosh, I wasn't even in college in this decade. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> wow, we're so old. Yeah. Anyway, recently, World, <laughs> World of Warcraft Classic was... Uh, re-released this year and so my brothers and I all have set up like some strict rules for ourselves and we play on Wednesday nights uh, for a couple hours so it's a really cool way to get to hang out with my brothers and like play a game that I really enjoy with some healthy limits nice. um, and if non-World of Warcraft I think I would have to give a shout out to Portal 2 which I went and looked up the date for which was 2011 this is like a puzzle oriented video game really enjoyed playing some Portal yeah, I was like really into PC games. I just saw like some friends when I was back home in New Jersey. Like I saw a, a friend of mine and he and I and like a, a group of other guys. We would like we were like have like LAN parties. Did you ever do that, Ben? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah, that sort of thing. We're like, you know, before you could just play whoever you wanted across the Internet. You had to like lug your PC over to your friend's house and set it up in his basement and hang out there until all hours of the night. But uh, yeah, I really I mean, since my magic obsession, I really haven't played like any video games. I'm just like, well, I'd just rather be playing magic. Um, but I did at the start of the decade get kind of into this game called Super Meat Boy, which is like an homage to like sort of my favorite games as a kid, like all these like side scrolling platformers like Mega Man or Super Mario or whatever. Um, and it's a really, really fun game. 
would recommend to people who like that sort of thing. Yeah, I had the old Halo 2 LAN parties in yes. college a lot in the honors dorm. Oh my God. Halo, so Halo 1, I was I felt like I was kind of good at. And then once I started playing like online on Halo 2 and just getting owned by 12-year-olds, I was like, I think I'm, yep. I think I'm done with this. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Next up from Mikael Foman 10, why can't everybody see that Limited is the best way to play Magic? My short answer is, I don't know. Like, yeah, what's the deal? I, I don't know either. I mean, it's it's rough. It really is. I think I think secretly people are afraid. I think that's what it is. So there <laughs> so there is like, uh, I think, a higher barrier to entry for limited than there is for constructed. I think that for you and me, I think what something that's appealing is that it's different every time. And I think there are people and this just doesn't drive with my personality. This is why I get bored playing constructed is I don't have the interest of like figuring out what the 56th to 60th card is in the deck that I'm like innovating on. And I don't have the interest in grinding out the, you know, whatever percentage to really maximize my win rate with the deck or figuring out the sideboard guides or sideboarding against other archetypes. Like all that stuff doesn't appeal to me at all. Right. But it does take a a lot of skill and a lot of time and a lot of dedication and a lot of creativity, I think. Uh, But limited is just that on steroids, I think, is is more new puzzles to solve. But it's it's easier in some ways. I don't know. For me, it is. Yeah, it doesn't take as much uh, repetition, I don't think, for limited. Like once you learn the stuff you learn in limited, you can apply. That's what I like about limited is applying where everyone starts off at an even playing field every time. I mean, in terms of like the resources you're going to get, like certainly your skill level will bring something else to the table. But I, I that's what really appeals to me about limited versus constructed. Right. I cannot imagine taking the wrong deck to a standard tournament oh and slogging. Well, I guess you don't have to slog through 12 rounds because right, you, you 0-4 just drop lose. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, three rounds is plenty. Also, speaking of three rounds, how stoked are you for draft PTQs? I know I will play those. I will be flying to draft PTQs. <laughs> yeah, this, they recently did this, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, where they had a three-round draft PTQ. It was like uh, one round, you, uh, one draft, and then three rounds of Swiss, another draft, three rounds of Swiss, and then cut to a top eight. Yeah, sounds awesome. Yes, please. Sign me up. Max Evans asks, would you rather 2-1 with the loss being in the finals every draft or have a split of only 0-3s and 3-0s? It's so funny. I read this question. I was like, well, there's an obvious answer. For me, and it is not the answer you chose. Well, it's funny. Like for the podcast, it would almost have to be O threes and three O's because we're sort of tracking things by trophy metrics. Uh-huh. But the the objectively correct answer is to two one with the loss being in every finals, right? Because there your win rate's sixty six percent, and the other way your win rate is fifty percent. You've gone on two one streaks, Ben. They're awful. They are. They're they brutal. Are awful. Imagine that streak being your entire life. Yeah, it would be tough. But I mean. 3 every other time you'd feel so bad but then you know you're gonna follow that up with a trophy or maybe you go on a really bad streak of 03s but then you're gonna go on this epic heater of three o's no that's not how it works right i guess it does yeah, yeah you could i don't know but the O three 3 streak you would just quit and never come back <laughs> yeah it's true the other three could be tried. It's, like, it's funny that we chose different answers i just assumed you were with me no i'm, I'm on I, I need that that victory feeling for three o's i can't get crushed in the finals every time you need to tweet at lords of limited where you where you where you are on this discussion is it is it two one city or oh three and three o's yeah hashtag i'm with ethan or hashtag i'm with ben next up Brittany mtg wants to know what's the lowest you've mulliganed and still won so for me i think it's four i don't think i've ever gone to three and one i specifically remember a time when i went to three in vintage cube uh with a balance deck Mm-hmm. And just like went like land, mox, balance, time twisted my opponent. We were just in top deck wars and I got there. That's awesome. Yeah, balance is just, that's one of the reasons balance is so good. It's just the anti-mulligan machine. Yep. And four, I think for me, an actual draft as well. Mossy Beard wants to know, what's the one non-magic thing that you both wish you knew how to do? For me, this is, I, we were talking about this in Twitch chat the other day, and I think it's improvising better in jazz. So I can kind of, if the chord changes aren't hard, like Dixieland clarinet is a lot simpler chord changes. I can like muddle my way around playing some Dixieland clarinet, but as soon as the chord changes get real, I can't really do it. And we were talking about it, and jazz is the draft of music. And mm. I just felt so bad <laughs> once, I, once I started thinking about that. I was like, I'm a constructed music player. It feels feels bad, man. You're an imposter. 
I know. Yeah. Uh, mine was also music related. I wish I knew how to play the piano. Oh, you should you should learn. Like uh, what? I got to take lessons. You could teach yourself. You're smart. I could teach. Me. I taught myself how to play guitar, but I don't. Oh, I tried to teach myself how to play guitar one summer and I failed so miserably. Oh, no. That is also one I think I wish I knew how to do. I tried and I just got blisters and I was frustrated. Yeah, it was no good. No good. Untap NL says when they finally create eight player drafts on MTGA, when is this going to be in our lifetime? Uh, will you ever play the bot drafts again for any other reason than time constraints? I think my initial answer is no. I mean, but after I started thinking about this and going back to MTGA, I had a really good win percent while I was going in best of one, like a 69% win win rate in best of one is absurd. Yes. Uh, like on my way to mythic and I was still losing gems. I don't know if it was the way, like it was a slow bleed, but I was still losing gems. So I could see depending on what the cost of the eight player drafts were on MTGA, that it would still make sense to play on MTGO because MTGO is free. Yeah, MTGO is free for me. I mean, we get a lot of questions about like, how, like, are you infinite or like how long did it take you or how much money do you spend on MTGO? And I think for both of us, especially if we're talking about best of one on arena versus drafting on MTGO, best of one on arena is more costly. Now, you know, it's, I'm still, you know, still per draft, each draft caught like the, actual cost of it right is whatever i don't i don't know what 750 is it 750 gems i don't know what that is in terms of dollars that's like what five bucks ish four bucks versus the the 12 bucks that it is on magic online 10 to 12 bucks on magic online but you know we're not paying that each time on magic online based on win rate and selling rares but on arena i do lose money and i think ben stark has even talked about this how he's like if i'm only doing best of one i'm generally losing gems and if ben stark is doing that then I don't know what the hope is for the rest of us. Right. But presumably when they create eight player drafts, they will be best of three would be my guess. I hope so. Yeah. I maybe not. Maybe they would have best of one. Maybe they'd have a queue for each. That'd be interesting. But just whatever the cost benefit analysis is, right? Because what, however the prize payouts are, because you're not going to use the packs. Like you can't use the packs to enter unless they let you use packs to enter. That would be gas. I can't imagine if there are human drafts and bot draft options on Magic Arena that I would ever choose bot drafts is the answer to this question. Yes, I agree. Next up, Stunlock FTW wants to know, what was your biggest level up moment in limited so for me i think the heuristic of using all of your mana every turn is probably the biggest level up for me like that as a gameplay thing is something that i think about all the time and i think really influences my play and then i'm also very critically thinking about the times when i deviate from that but i think that's a a, was a probably the biggest level up for me and i think for me when ryan came on and talked about drafting with preferences it sort of blew my mind because i was very much of the limited resources quadrant theory evaluate cards draft the hard way draft draft the hard way draft whatever your seat tells you and just to know that there was another approach that worked and was viable and blending those two models and figuring out how they worked for me like to go into a format with the idea that i want to draft blue or i want to end up in blue like I had never, ever thought that before mm-hmm. Ryan Sachs came onto the show. Never once. And I very frequently have that mentality now. And I will try to get there. And if I don't, I don't. But you try to set yourself up to end up somewhere you want to be or where you think a good deck is. Yeah, I think a perfect example for that for me is this vintage cube season with my like soft to hard avoiding blue because I feel like it's overdrafted. Like I, I don't think I would ever have gotten to the place where I felt confident about that as a viable decision without talking to Ryan. Yeah. Next is who taught us to play magic. For me, it is my brothers and myself. And same for me, my brothers. And I remember playing like Chandelar back in the day and, you know, just like plotting through or like going to my, maybe not, I don't even know if I went to my local game store like first when I started, but like doing that and just like playing terrible decks against other people with terrible decks. It was a, it was a different time to learn magic back then. It definitely was. The tw- the 20 lands, 60 card deck. Those were the days. Those were the days. Just like turn one mountain lightning bolt you, you're at 17, go. <laughs> All right. Our last question here is from user Tress. What is the next goal slash milestone for the podcast? I think there's there's two perspectives to this. And the first one I think is a financial perspective. And I think that would be to where the podcast got to a place where it could support both of us full time. Like that would be incredible. Like there's nothing more that I would like to do with my life, I think, than be a content creator. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do think we're trending in that direction thanks to the very generous support from all of our patrons and everybody that listens and spreads the good word. 
Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supported the podcast, whether it be just, you know, coming to Twitch and sharing your Twitch Prime and saying, hey, love the podcast or or just listening and telling your friend, hey, listen to this great podcast. You, know, you should check it out. Anything along those lines helps us out. Right, because that leads to the other point here, which is a non-financial goal of, of growth, which is through the listener base. And so, you know, listening to the podcast does really help. I think I'll, I'll take a moment here to just sort of like, you know, if you find value in this show and you're not able to give financial support, the support of your download really does mean a lot or the support of you then making a point of telling people at your LGS next time you draft, like, hey, I listen to this show if you haven't heard of it you should check it out. Like that really helps grow the show. If you give us a review on iTunes, that really helps us to like bump up the show when people are, are searching for magic podcasts. Like there are non-financial ways for you to help grow the show. So as we look to grow the listener base, figure out how to reach people who aren't like super spikes like us. I think, you know, we've had a very streamlined like mission statement for the podcast from the get go. Like Ben and I wanted to create a podcast for people like us, people who were drafting the format uh, an unreasonable number of times and who really wanted that like week to week metagame shift or having people talk about format specifics even two months deep. Like we wanted that show to exist. And I think we've done a very good job of creating that, but finding a way to not change the content, but to market that to people who perhaps aren't getting those hundred draft reps, but would still find value in our show. And I would add on to that. I think those people at FNM, you know, maybe only draft once every Friday would get a lot of value out of our show, right? So if anybody listens to Arena Deckless podcast, they were talking about how sideboard guides are really popular, right? Like just a quick and dirty image of this in, this out in this matchup. Like that's the type of content that people want right now, because there are people that want to be competitive at tournaments that have, you know, maybe a family and kids and just can't play the reps that you need to figure out what you're actually supposed to do in sideboarding in every matchup. But they're smart and good magic players and they want to be able to go to FNM or a tournament on a Saturday and feel competent. And the sideboarding guide lets them do that. And I think that's what our podcast does for limited people too. Mm -hmm. Like You can listen to our podcast, know what the best commons are, know how to draft decks. You can go to an FNM, I think. And my brothers, I think, are living proof of that. Like They're good, intelligent people, good drafters like limited. And I think this podcast lets them sit down on MTGA or whatever if they were to go to an FNM and feel competent. And I think that's somebody we need to start reaching with the podcast, a demographic of magic players that I don't necessarily think we're reaching right now. Right. So I think I think our first step is in asking you listeners who do go to the FNMs if you're, you know, more grindier than your opponents, but but sharing your knowledge or where you find your knowledge with them really would help help us grow as well. And I think, you know, we really want to get a website up and running. We're, we're trying to get some more merch besides our t-shirts out there, growing our content beyond just the podcast, advancing our YouTube channel beyond our monthly showdown videos. I think something I think about a lot is, you know, we did this a, a little over a year ago. We retooled a lot of our Patreon reward tiers. And I think it's about time to, to start to do that again, just to think about what we can give, what's the most valuable thing that we can give back to our listeners who want to support our show financially and how to how to get that to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, looking ahead to 2020, I would say more content from us. Yeah. Very excited to do more content and do better content here on Lords of Limited. Here's something I think that is it's tough for me to do because it just requires a lot of discipline. You know, what I want to do is just like play magic on stream, but I think to grow the show and to increase the amount of content that we're doing, I get that has to be ratcheted back and there's got to be a lot more behind the scenes work done. To, to create that that additional content. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very exciting year, Ben, for us. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, other people, I forget who I was talking to about this, but I think you and I got in on the front of the bubble of content creation. I think it'd be really hard to start a podcast right now. Like, I think we started streaming and started the podcast like just at the right time. And I feel feel very grateful for that. Yeah, I, I do too. But that, I mean, again, that just feels like luck for, for me. Like the the thing that's so hard now is that I mean, we're still essentially nobodies. Like we have, you know, that's one of the reasons we have our win rates at the beginning of the episode was to sort of like give legitimacy to our podcast and to be like, hey, we are like playing a lot and winning a lot and we have the experience to back up what we're saying. I think that's just tough to do if you're not sort of already somewhat internet famous or magic famous. But I do think that is part of the appeal of our show, too, is that, you know, you can come figure out this format with us. And I think that's very much true. I think we at the beginning, like the first two weeks of the format are literally 
the best two weeks to be in the Discord because there's so much discussion and everybody's sharing opinions and we we try to figure it out. And then when we come out with that episode of Discord broke it, like I think that's really cool. And I think that's something unique to our show because you and I aren't you know, professional magic players sending down the law from up high. Yeah, I think we are. We're in the trenches with all of you in those first weeks. Yeah, very cool. I think that's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you very much, Salty Pretzels, for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show and coming along on our holiday mailbag episode. Yeah, very, very cool to get to do an episode like this. If you want to come check us out on social media, I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a very happy new year, happy new decade, and we will see you all in 2020 for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Number 39, Andrew Cuneo. Cu- <laughs> Cuneo. <Q-Q-Q-N-A. Q-N-A. laughs>